Hello, this is Pastor Luke, and you are listening to the Living Hope Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Our mission is to grow disciples and multiply churches who will glorify God and transform communities. For more information about our church, please visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com. As we're lighting the Advent candles and uh, just the power of how God uses light uh, as a symbol of his presence and of his truth. I love the phrase in the song you sang, your truth lights a beautiful spark. So as we go to this first week, first Sunday of Advent, and it's the expectation of hope is represented by the first candle we're lighting. Jeremiah 33, 14 to 16 says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. Today we light the candle of expectation and hope. May it remind each and every one of us of God's great promise to us. He is our hope. He is our redeemer. And he is our savior. Let's pray. Father, during the Advent season, may we be reminded of your promises to us and your fulfillment of them. But may those promises be more than just a theoretical or a mental or an emotional hope. May they be our motivation for our life. As you say in Titus, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Lord, I pray that daily, the hope, the glorious hope of your return, the glorious hope of eternal life with you, the glorious hope of presence with Jesus Christ, the first advent of Jesus' appearance as a babe, and the truth and life that we receive through him, may it motivate my and our daily life to live godly lives, to deny ungodliness, and to live for that glorious appearance of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May this first 
candle symbolize the expectation of hope and its motivation for our living a godly life. These things we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. It's good to be with you again. It's actually been several weeks uh, since I've been able to to preach, to be to be with you uh, in this way, and so it's it's really good to to be back again. Uh, last weekend in October, just kind of give you a little update of kind of what all has been going on. So last weekend in October, I uh, had uh, national board meetings, USMB national board meetings in Phoenix. A little bit stressful because I needed to chair those, but it, it went well. Good group of people. Uh, came back, uh, preached the next day. And then the following week, kind of a short week, uh, Monday there was no school, and so with the kids. But then over the weekend, we had the Central District Convention up in Jamestown, North Dakota. And if you go nonstop, it's eight hours, but you figure bathroom breaks and Cabela's and whatever else, it's like 10 to 12. And uh, so, so went, up, went, went up there and uh, was supposed to come back on, on Saturday. And uh, the whole week leading up to it, I was thinking, you know, I should probably just ask Mark Danielson to preach. I'm not sure. It's kind of a tight window. Should I, no, no, I, I can do it. This is my job. Um, I, you know, and if I need to, I'll just duck out early on Saturday, come back, finish up, you know, this is doable, I can do it. Well, going into the meetings, uh, John Langer, one, one of the, the guys who helps organize it, he calls me up and he's like, hey, would you share a few words while you're up there? And kind of make a long story short, you know, there's, um, in a denomination or even a church, right, like sometimes you'll have one or two kind of loud voices, and then sometimes the question is, do these loud minority represent kind of the silent majority, you know? And so John was saying, like, could you, you know, just come in and, you know, address that, and, you know, do these loud voices kind of represent the majority or not? Like, you know, just bring a little peace and comfort to the situation. Great. No problem. Whatever. Five, ten minutes, maybe fifteen if I'm long-winded, whatever. So on Thursday, on the day I drive up, I text the guys, you know, and I'm like, hey, so like, what's the plan? Like, what do you want me to do? And they're like, well, we carved out 90 minutes for you. (laughs) But you don't have to use it all on Saturday morning. Oh, fantastic. So we get there, and I I get like, you know, because, you know, like you have like your binder, and they have the schedule and that kind of thing. And so, and I'm thinking, all right, Saturday morning. So I look to the schedule for Saturday morning. And at 8.30, it says that there's a panel discussion from ministry leaders. Oh, okay. And so I'm like, panel discussion, that'll be a little bit different format. And so I spend several minutes trying to figure out, like, how to frame this, like, in, in a panel discussion. I don't know if you know what tunnel vision is. Tunnel vision is where you just get so hyper-focused on something, you don't see anything around you, right? Four lines below in red font, bolded, is, you know, keynote speaker Luke Heidley. I missed that. <laughs> and so I'm like, panel discussion, how are we going to end this? And, you know, the lady at the table is like, oh, I hear you're sharing this weekend. And I'm like, she must have seen a list of the panel discussion people. So I'm flipping through, looking for, like, who's all going to be there and whatnot. And then after way too long, I see my name in the red letters and then, you know, freaked out. Because, like, what else would we do? And um, so, anyways, it was, um, 
yeah. <laughs> At that point, I was like, I really need Mark Danielson to preach. <laughs> so called up Mark. He was super gracious, uh, agreed to preach, which worked out great. Um, shared on Saturday morning, contacted several of you and said, please pray for this situation. And, uh, and so it, it actually went, went well, got, got some good feedback. We had a Q&A time uh, that was kind of a lot of fun. But came back on Saturday, wasn't feeling well. Um, got in at like one, and then in the morning, I picked up a home COVID test, woke up on Sunday morning, both Joe and I just felt awful, uh, so we did the home COVID test, came back positive, like, well, we can't go to church now, so we stayed home, and then, you know, went in on Monday, and to the clinic, and yep, you have COVID, and you should quarantine for, for 10 days, and that kind of thing, and then even at that point, I was like, okay, so I should be better in a week, I could still preach, like, I just, it's quarantine, but I could, like, sneak in the back, you know, not interact, talk, breathe on the mic a little bit, but that's fine. Then, like, and I was like, that's, that's really ridiculous. I, no, I, I shouldn't do that. So, eventually decided that that, that was the, the, the better way to, to do that. And so, uh, of course, Mark Danielson covered for, for two weeks and really uh, appreciated that. It's been kind of... So in January, Joe and I start a, a five-week sabbatical, and in reflecting on that, and even, and Mark Danielson has agreed to mentor me through that, which has been fantastic, we've already met a couple times, but in reflect, and all this has a point, in reflecting on, like, this idea that I really needed to preach the week of the convention, uh, wondering if I should actually come in during COVID quarantine and preach. Um, and some of the stuff that, that Mark was been go- working me through, I realized that there was a part of me that was thinking that the most like holy or the most noble or the most Christ-like behavior would be to simply sprint across the finish line and enter into sabbatical just totally spent and exhausted because that would be like the, the holy thing to do, right? Like somehow spiritual exhaustion was associated with like a sign of holiness or a sign of like good christian behavior and 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 that kind of thing so obviously i have issues um but the reason i share that and i haven't seen this outright but i think that that might be a mentality that is under the surface in in our community as well too um, if you want to elbow a spouse, that's fine. Do it discreetly. But, um, you know, in good Christian living, we work hard. Okay? Absolutely true. Right? Work is good. Work is holy. In good Christian living, we, we rest. We Sabbath. Okay? Absolutely true. Right? Rest is good. Rest is holy. But if we are intentionally elevating exhaustion, we're actually in a very dangerous place. To be tired for the sake of being tired... Um, to, to be tired for the sake of, like, bragging rights, to be tired or exhausted because our sense of identity demands it, right? Like, that's actually a pretty big, serious problem, right? Like, we work hard for his glory, we rest because we, we trust God, but, but ultimately we don't earn, you know, favor or holiness or results by choosing to e- exhaust ourselves, Right? Sabbath, Sabbath rest, is actually a very profound act, but it's also a very loud, 
faith statement that if you will honor God for six days and rest on the seventh, he is going to so bless your efforts that you will accomplish in six days what the rest of the world is trying to do in seven. Like it is a very loud faith statement that we're trusting God that by his miraculous intervention, six days of labor are going to be equal to or better than seven days of, of labor. And so, and, and all that is, is going to tie in a little bit with, with what we're, we're talking um, about today. Um, so we're starting an Advent sermon series, and we're going to be looking at Isaiah 9-6. And uh, Isaiah 9-6 reads like this, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. So much in that. But we're going to focus on this. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so for these four weekends of Advent, we're going to look at at each one of those names and and what it, it tells us about the character of God, what we can learn on the character of God, but then also just how that informs our our daily living. A little bit of background on Isaiah, Isaiah 9, what is kind of happening. And uh, Landon, you can actually bring up the the one and only slide uh, for this morning. So um, in 930 BC, the nation of Israel splits into two countries, right? So you had Saul, you had David, you had Solomon. After Solomon dies, they have have a split. The ten tribes to the north, um, they keep the name Israel, but they need a new capital city. So they choose Samaria as their capital city. Two tribes to the south, they they take the name of Judah, but Jerusalem is in their territory, so they keep the capital of Jerusalem. So you've got these these two countries, and this is relevant to to all of this, right? So um, the book of Isaiah is written over about a 60-year time period, rough estimates from smart people, okay? And Isaiah himself lived in the capital of Jerusalem, but is speaking words to the kingdom of Israel and speaking words to the, the, the kingdom of Judah. So in about 740 B.C., about when Isaiah starts to write, about that same time, um, Assyria comes in and they take over, not all of Israel, but a bunch of it, and they haul some people away to capti- captivity. About 20 years later, they're actually able to, to conquer Samaria and really conquer all of that, that northern tribe of Israel. And a lot of those people uh, get hauled away into slavery. Um, and then about um, another 20 years later, they tried to capture Jerusalem but failed. Assyria did, basically just because the Lord intervened. Um, Jerusalem was kind of captured about 100 years later, 600 but then in 586, like, it was just wiped out. Like, just, they just came in and, and decimated it. So Isaiah is writing his book during those 60 years, right? When Assyria, when the Assyrians first started to come into Israel, and then um, and eventually Judah. And so the book of Isaiah is kind of this mix, because he's giving all kinds of warnings to the nation of Israel and to the nation of Judah. And he's foretelling what the Assyrians are going to do. And after the Assyrians, what the Babylonians are going to do. And so there's warnings about sin and calls for repentance and, you know, what these other nations are going to do if the the people fail to repent. Um, Isaiah lived through, we think he lived through about four kings and then the fifth king had him killed. Um, So that was was kind of the the scope of, of his ministry. And I don't, 
I don't want to gloss over how, in, in many ways, I think this would have been a really horrifying, terrifying time to live, right? I mean, some parts of the ancient world were just horrific. Um, you know, for Americans, for the last hundred or so years, uh, except for Pearl Harbor, I mean, most of our wars have been fought overseas, right? So we get news clips, okay? For them, the, you know, these are invaders wanting to come into your town, wanting to come into your village with swords and spears and hack everyone to death and then haul away the survivors to captivity and slavery never to be seen again, right? So there, there is just kind of a level of, of fear and, and terror, but yet at the same time, arrogance on, on behalf of the Israelites. One commentary described it like this in kind of unpacking this, and, and they write this. Judgment of the northern kingdom. Having described the glory of Israel's future, Isaiah addressed the situation of his own times. The northern kingdom, so it's Israel, those ten tribes to the north, despite experiencing God's increasingly severe discipline, refused to turn back to the Lord. Though suffering and the ravages of foreign invasion and civil war, the nor- or through um, all of that stuff, the northern kingdom proudly claimed to be the master of its own destiny. They continued to antagonize Judah, country to the south. The nation's corrupt leaders continued to enact unjust laws, deprive the poor of their rights. For such a nation, divine judgment was inevitable. The disciplinary measures taken by God in the past would culminate into a day of, reconi- a day of reckoning characterized by exile and slaughter. So that's the environment that Isaiah lived. That's what he is, is writing about. But mixed throughout all of those warnings, Isaiah gives hope. Because he speaks of a king, of a coming king. He speaks of a coming kingdom. He speaks of God rescuing Israel. He talks about God establishing his kingdom on earth. He talks about this Messiah who is going to save the people. And so early on in his, in his writings, you know, Isaiah, it's kind of this mix of, you better straighten up or bad things are going to happen. But he also gives this hope of a future where everything will be put right. So Isaiah 9, starting in verse 2, reads like this, right? So there's all these warnings, and he's going to give all these warnings. But for a few verses, he speaks of hope, and he writes this. The people who walked in darkness... Have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff on his shoulder. The rod of his oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian. Every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace. So 700 years after Isaiah writes this, Jesus comes. Jesus came once. Jesus is coming again. All throughout his book, Isaiah kind of blends those two. Did Isaiah know that there would be two comings? I don't really know. Maybe he thought there was one. Maybe there was two. I mean, now we can look back and be like, two comings. Came once. He did some of the work. He's coming again. He'll finish it off. Right? So in Isaiah, when he's giving these hopeful prophetic verses, you know, it's kind of this mingling. Because, the, you know, every garment rolled in blood has not yet been burned in the fire. Like, we're not there yet. But a child has come. Right? So even in those verses, we see that some of it has happened and some of it will happen. So during Advent, we're going to look at those four titles, what they mean, what they tell us about the character of God, the impact on, on our day-to-day living. Wonderful counselor. Wonderful literally means incomprehensible. Which, like, we tend to be so casual when we use wonderful, right? Like, I had a cup of coffee. It was wonderful. I had a nap. It was wonderful, right? Like, we're very, you know... I went to the kids' band concert. It was wonderful, you know? Like, we're just very kind of casual and flippant about, about wonderful, right? But in, in this context, in the way that Scripture uses it, wonderful boggles the mind. Like, wonderful is speechless. Like, it's just, it's just beyond comprehension. The, the same word is used later on, or, or another time in Judges. Uh, Samson's father asked the Lord, What is your name? The angel of the Lord responded, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Or, like you could literally work that, Why do you ask my name, since it's beyond your understanding? Like, wonderful is simply just, like, like you can't even, you don't get it. You don't get it. Then that is coupled with the word counselor. So, when I, and this has kind of been a bit, a bit of a paradigm shift for me on this one, right? Because when I would think of counselor, I would think of like what you would see like in TV or in cartoons or something, right? Like counselor is where they have like a very nice couch and you lay on the couch and I'm going to lay there and I'm just going to talk about myself for like an hour and all my feelings, you know, and the counselor has like their, you know, yellow legal pad and they're taking notes. And after like an hour of me talking about myself... Like, they just give me some really profound insights about me, but it's super encouraging, right? It's like, oh, well, you're experiencing tough times because you're super awesome. And just keep being super awesome, you know, and you'll get through this, right? Like, that, like that was my kind of frame of reference for, for, for counselor. If you look at the context, if you look at other passages, if you look at how Scripture uses counselor, counselor is kingship. Counselor is ruler. A counselor is one who governs, who guides, who leads, Uh, The counselor is the wise king. Counselor is used to describe Solomon and all of his wisdom. It's used to describe the Lord himself. It's used to describe Jesus. It's used to describe the Holy Spirit, right? This isn't like private office lounge chair. This is throne room. This is courthouse. This This is palace. This is not where I go for my feelings. This is like the wise person who can give me answers to the most difficult questions and is going to lead me in a way that is just phenomenal. And the reason why this is a bit of a paradigm shift, because if counselor is the lounge chair, then this verse is all about me. 
and how the coming Messiah is going to serve me and lead me and tell me really great things about myself. But, but if Wonderful Counselor is the throne room, then this is all about Christ. This is all about how wonderful he is. And this is how excellent his leadership is going to be. This verse speaks to how well he will lead us. So He's going to lead us so well, it is literally beyond your imagination. Right? Like, you have never been guided or led by someone so good. Uh, another way that you could describe wonderful counselor is like, this is extraordinary. This is God-like advisor leading us. Wise counselor, wonderful counselor. One of the things that, about a wonderful counselor is that they understand the times. And we live in some weird times, Right? Probably not as bad as the Syrians on the doorstep wanting to slaughter everyone, but it's still, like, weird and odd, right? Like, there's just, there's, it's bad, okay? But when you have a wonderful and wise counselor who knows everything, God doesn't panic because God is not surprised by any of this, right? Like, like God isn't surprised by anything. So when I was in North Dakota, I saw the schedule, and I'm surprised by it. And like any good person, I start to panic. But I had to remember, okay, God has not panicked, and even though this is a surprise to me, and this is new to me, God has literally known about this moment since before time began. And so I think I have 24 hours to prepare, but God has literally had several thousand years to think this through. And so success in that doesn't come from, I'm going to need to prepare very well. Success comes from, I'm really going to be need to be led by the Holy Spirit. Right? And so I did prepare and I had my notes. But more importantly, I started to text people and be like, like you got to pray for me. Because the only way that this works is just for the Holy Spirit to lead through all of this. And so as much as there was nervousness, there's also this sense of don't panic, stay calm. And this goes well by really tapping into the leadership of the Holy Spirit, not by me being really super smart or creative, right? Because he has had lots of time, plenty of time to think through this. If you know how something is going to end, it really takes away the anxiety of it, right? Like, th- like, there is deep emotion connected with not knowing how something ends. Sometimes it's fun. Sometimes it's miserable, right? Like, someone may record, uh, like, a sports game because they want to watch it later, but they don't want you to tell them how it ends because they want to enjoy the, mo- the emotion of, you know, of the game and how is this going to end. And, but if you tell them the final score, they're like, well, you ruined it, Right? Like, they're, they're, you know, how a sports game is going to end. What is my test score going to be? Who will I marry? What is Christmas family gathering going to be like? Will I get the job? Will I have enough money, right? Like, there, there, is, there is deep emotion associated, good or bad, with not knowing and just kind of riding through the moment. Whereas if you know how something ends, like, it loses that whether it's thrill or whether the stress or the worry. Jesus is a wonderful counselor, and he knows. 
He knows what's going to happen. He knows what should happen. He knows how this ends. And so we press into him because there's incredible comfort to say, I don't know where we're going and I don't know how this ends, so I'm just going to follow you really closely because you know the path and, and you know how this ends. So at the beginning, talked about, you know, just I kind of created this weird kind of like value or holiness with being like tired or exhausted or kind of the do-it-all attitude, right? That attitude does not recognize Jesus as wonderful counselor. If, and there is a, there's all kinds of stuff that, that we could unpack on this too because I, I think even t- intertwined with that, and this will sound silly when I say it, but I think this is a very prevalent fear in our community as well too. A certain fear of, I don't want anyone to be able to accuse me of being lazy. I think that one's real prevalent. In our, like, we don't talk about it outright, but underneath the surve- like surface, I think that one's there a lot. I don't want anyone to be able to accuse me of being lazy. So I will just, I choose exhaustion over reputation. That attitude does not recognize Jesus as wonderful counselor. If I find value in tired or depletion, then I have ignored all of his commands for, come to me, those who of you are tired, and I will give you rest. My burden is light. Honor the Sabbath. My soul finds rest in God. You lead me beside still waters. Rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their examples of disobedience. And not only have I ignored his command for rest, but I have not acted on the belief that that he is a wonderful counselor who makes amazing decisions with God-level wisdom and who knows how this is going to end. Right? I was not acting like God was enough. I was acting like I needed to be enough. And that was really dumb. But some of you all do it too. So we're in this together. If you and I are going to behave like we actually believe this, that we believe that Jesus is a wonderful counselor, that he knows how something will end, that we can trust him to lead us with God-like wisdom, that he calls us to rest even when times are stressful, and that we don't, and that we don't know how something will end, but he, he does, then we have to accept his commands for rest. We have to stop panicking about the future and find our trust in his leadership and follow his leading and his prompting and trust him that he will be enough and that his leadership will be enough as we move forward in this. Amen? Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you were enriched and encouraged. If you have any questions about Christ or church or would like more information, visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com or email me directly at luke at livinghopehenderson.com. We hope you have a fantastic week. Take care and God bless.